Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. We are a weekly Columbus-centric podcast focused on the civics, lifestyle, entertainment, and people of our city. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. This week, we are talking about real estate. First up, a conversation with Mark Conti from the Downtown Special Improvement District to talk about the real estate landscape in downtown how it's changed, how it's growing, and why we have some catching up to do. And then an in-depth conversation with local realtor Joe Peffer on the ins and outs of buying a new home, working with your realtor, and why it's important to wash your windows. You can get more information on what we discuss in today's episode in the show notes at theconfluencecast.com. Big thank you to our sponsors this week, Delicious Real Estate and Telhio Credit Union. Enjoy the interviews. The Confluence Cast is sponsored by Delicious Real Estate, a locally owned Columbus real estate brokerage servicing all of Central Ohio, but primarily downtown Columbus neighborhoods and first ring suburbs. You can find out more about why Delicious Real Estate caps their seller side commissions and will never represent both buyer and seller in the same transaction at deliciousrealestate.com. Sitting down here with Mark Conti, Deputy Director of Research, Planning, and Facilities at Capital Crossroads Special Improvement Districts, which encompasses, Mark, both the uh, Capital Crossroads SID and Discovery SID. Great. And you've been here since 2007, originally from Cleveland, came to Columbus to attend the Ohio State University back in 1988. Yes. We're here talking today about downtown real estate in general. What is the general state of downtown real estate? We want we want to focus a lot more on residential today. We were talking before in terms of apartments and residential things sort of bottomed out in 2000. Yeah, that's correct. Back in the 1950, that was the peak for the downtown population. It sat at around 30,000 and it has just slowly declined. Uh, we had the flight to the suburbs. We had the construction of new highways, which just bulldozed massive amounts of housing. Uh, on top of that, in the 1950s, we had urban renewal, where big swaths of downtown, especially in the Discovery District, were bulldozed. Uh, so we lost a lot of housing over the years. So d- when it came down to the 2000 census, we were down to just about 3,500 residents. Okay. And not I, I don't want to get too into that, but sort okay. of how did the... It's something I think about a lot when I happen to be on the freeway. How did this happen? Specifically, I used to live in the Milo Grogan neighborhood, which is, I think, one of the most bisected neighborhoods in the city. You know, 71 did that. Was this just all eminent domain and sort of, you know, the planners slash the state slash the city slash the county all sort of came in and agreed and then went to homeowners slash building owners and said, hey, we need this now. Yeah, basically. And, okay. it, and it happened all over the country, uh, you know, starting with the National Highway Act uh, under the Eisenhower administration. Okay. And 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 everybody, the, you know, government at all levels was much more aggressive at that time. So it was eminent domain. They were just taking property. Generally speaking, they weren't providing enough compensation for the property they were taking. They weren't providing. So fair. I mean, I, I am always. I was always told as a student that fair market value was happening. That was not happening. It was not happening. And uh, and and they were also there were also lots of promises about relocating people uh, to similar types of housing. That did not happen. 
uh, promises just were not kept. There were stories of people who, once they found out the highway was coming through their neighborhood, they stuck their head in the oven and killed themselves. Is that true? Yes. Okay. Do you think that downtown was sort of kept in mind when that, because that, if you look back, that's the most impactful planning wise that's happened to downtown Columbus in the last hundred years, Yeah. which is why I'm focusing it on it, on it a little bit more. Do you think they did it right? No. Okay. <laughs> what, what did they do wrong? There was, there was this idea, especially with urban renewal, there was this idea that once they bulldozed what they considered to be slums, uh, that they would they would get developers to to then build new buildings and they would get all the kinds of new people living there, new shops, uh, new offices, and it just never came to fruition. Okay. And uh, a, a, a counterexample is German Village. German Village was also slated for urban renewal, but it was one of the last areas that the city was going to get to for demolition. And by the time the city got there, the neighborhood had organized to save all the buildings. They formed the German Village Society, got the historic district established. Uh, and, and so, I'm sorry, you're, when you're talking about renewal, you're talk, this is post-freeway. Yeah. Right. And, and really, well, in combination with the freeways. Okay. Can you give an example of a neighborhood that was slated for renewal and, and sort of what happened to it? Yeah, a big example is the Market Mohawk area the, or the Market Mohawk Urban Renewal District. So generally... Everything south of Town Street, I would say east of Fort Street to the highway, that whole area was an urban renewal district, generally so speaking. sometimes referred to as the Market Exchange District. Yes. Okay. And so you, you look at all those four or five-story office buildings along Town Street. All of that came because of urban renewal. Uh, and they, also before the American with Disabilities Act. And yes. so those buildings are great. <laughs> <laughs> the central market was located where... Uh, in this area. Okay. And so we had a central market downtown. So that was demolished. And in its place, they were going to build a, a modern grocery store. And so that grocery store uh, ended up being an A&P. Uh, the building still stands. It's where Stanton's sheet music is currently. Okay. And it, But if you look at the design of that building, so where the central market was very urban, the design of the A&P store was very suburban. The big parking lot in the front, the back of the store actually faces 4th Street. Right. So that's where the loading is. The front door doesn't face Fort Street, which is the main street. Right. Fast forward a little bit. After 2000, we sort of, you know, we hit the uh, the low point, at least in terms of residency. Right. Yes. OK. Where are we now? We're we're on an upswing. We've been on a 15 year upswing, really beginning with Miranova. So in a lot of ways, that's really what started a lot of this. And, and shortly after that. Uh, Capital South, uh, which which main their main project had been uh, the construction of Columbus City Center. Mm -hmm. They started focusing more on downtown housing, and this was also at, at the time Mayor Coleman got elected and wanted it wanted to see more things happening within downtown. What is Capital South working on now? Then Capital South now, uh, well, they've merged with Columbus Downtown Development Corporation. So uh, Capital South's original mission was to redevelop the area just south of the capital, hence the name. Capital they did, South. They did uh, Columbus City Center, and then when, when that had to get uh, renewed, if you will, uh -huh. uh, it became Columbus Commons, and they sold off portions of the, the land for new development, which was always part of the plan right. for the Commons. So really, Capital South is focused on managing the Commons and the Commons Garage. Uh, and then the, 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 their sister group is Columbus Downtown Development Corporation. I would say right now that they've completed the riverfront is, is really focused on 
uh, development of the Scioto Peninsula and the veterans, the National Veterans Memorial. Okay. And we've talked on this podcast before about sort of the structure of SIDS. So you can go back to the Carlos and Columbus episode if you want to know how Mark Conti's bread gets buttered. What is the structure of Downtown South? They're not a SID. They're not a SID. They're, they're a, uh, both Capital South and CDDC are private nonprofit redevelopment corporations. Okay. Uh, they get their funding from different sources. Uh, Capital South, of course, is funded a lot through revenue from the Commons Garage. Okay. I guess the question is, whose interest do they have in mind? City Center was demolished and we got this beautiful park. While it was the plan the entire time, the park is slowly piecemeal being sold off and developed, which is fine. There will still be a, a park. A very a, large park. A, a very large park still, but it will not be what it originally was. And what pe- sort of people were originally able to drive by and be like, this is so nice. And then it becomes surrounded in condos and apartment buildings. Capital South did that. Um, again, it was our, always sort of the plan, So, you, or excuse me, I don't want to say sort of. It was always the plan, so I don't want to fault them for that. But whose interests do they have in mind? Is it simply the beautification of Columbus? Is it commercial development? What sort of boxes are they trying to tick off? That's a good question. I think for the best answer, of course, you need to talk to them. Okay. Just in a general sense, they are focused on very large projects, so things like the riverfront, things like the commons, and, and they are doing these projects as catalysts for private development. Interesting. What was our bottom out in, in 2000? 3,500. 3,500 people. Yeah. Some have more friends on Facebook than the number of people that were living downtown. And that's across 1,500 acres. Okay. Which is a very large space. Let's generally define downtown generally for for most purposes downtown is considered the area bounded by three highways so 670 70 and 71 and then it goes across the river to the railroad tracks over by spaghetti warehouse and kosai okay so how many people do we have now we have about 7700 right now living within that same area so we've more than doubled the population uh we estimate the sit estimates that by 2018 will get to 10,000 within that boundary. In terms of what you've seen in development in other you know, similar cities, are we doing good? We're doing good, but we're certainly lagging. If okay. You, if you, there was a Brookings report. I, I wish I could remember all the statistics, but report from Brookings on downtown housing across the country from like 10 years ago, and we were lagging then. Sort of the pace, I would say the pace of development you're seeing now is what we were hoping to see in the couple of years prior to the recession. Recession, of course, got in the way. Right. Things have now rebounded. Well, because that, I mean, from where we sit right now, that was right in the middle of the time frame we're talking about. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And, I, and I think we were headed there because the, the, during the recession, the interest in living downtown has never waned. It was just people's ability to move there or the developer's ability to get credit to build a building. Right. What's the, the mix of rental and ownership? Generally, it's still mostly rental. Probably, I'm going to get the figure wrong, but probably close to 70% rental. Okay. I imagine you've done a little bit of research on the price point. It's higher than other neighborhoods in Columbus. Yes. Why do you believe that is? Especially given the views are awesome, the amenities are a little bit lacking. There is now a grocery store downtown. What do you ascribe that higher rental rate to? So the downtown market is is kind of funny in that when when this all started uh, 15 years ago, uh, Capital South and the city had commissioned a downtown housing study. Initially, the thinking was that we would see a lot of apartments get built first after the city put their incentives package together. 
we would see a lot of apartments and then over time we would see start to see more for sale product and these incentives are for the developer to build it so they're getting like a property tax abatement Correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The the centerpiece of the incentives was and is a property tax abatement. If you bought a condo, that property tax abatement followed you if you were the buyer. But for the renter, it stays with the developer. Right. And I'm sorry, everybody always talks about incentives and sort of the centerpiece being tax abatements. What other incentives could there be? They're not handing out back rubs. Right, right. There were, and I'm not sure how much of the city is still doing, but there were like water and sewer tap fee credits. This, awesome. Okay. This kind of gets yeah. into the weeds, but if you look at a typical block in downtown, there probably could have been 10 or 20 buildings on the block, each one with its own tap into the pipe. Right. When you go to build a new building, you want one tap, but much larger than what it would have been for, let's say, a single family home. And so the city. And so you pay the city to do that for you. Right. Right. And then the city would turn around and then give you a credit for all those little taps that were getting shut off. So you weren't paying, uh, you were just paying for the net increase. Gotcha. And, and as part of that housing study, the, the whole reason for the incentives in the first place is that the study found that the cost to build a unit within downtown proper was much more expensive for how much you could get back either leasing it or selling it. Okay. And so there was a market failure. And this, this is where government should step in. When there's a market failure, they stepped in with an incentive to do a correction. Now we're starting to see a, a housing market within downtown. Right, which is viable. But again, the higher price is because it is simply more expensive to build here. Yeah. And that's by virtue of the price of the property. And also, frankly, it's not that easy to build in downtown. You can't have a sprawling campus of trailers set up, you know, across the street because there's already a building there. Right. Right. A good example is is are, are the apartment buildings Lifestyle Communities is building. They they have three different sites. The Troutman site is under construction now. That ran into problems because uh, as they excavated, they ran into issues with the adjoining foundation for the building next door. Ooh. Uh, so they they're they're now moving full steam ahead on that building. They're they're using one of their development sites as construction staging for the other two. Right. Uh, not everyone has the ability to do that. And then, then when they don't, you end up seeing, you know, lane closures on streets. Right. And, and sometimes on major streets. But that also represents the other issues that d the downtown developers face. If they have to demolish a building, chances are there's environmental remediation, mm -hmm. usually with asbestos. Even if it's a vacant lot, a lot of times when they demolish buildings, they would demolish the building and just collapse everything into the basement and, and bury it. Over it. Right. So now when you go to rebuild, you got to excavate probably and probably do environmental remediation there as well. Right. Absolutely. But going back to what you talked about with other cities. Uh, yeah. For example, Cleveland has about 14,000 residents downtown right now. Okay. Cincinnati has about 16,000. And I think the, one of the key differences in both cases is that they... Well, and I'll say that that doesn't seem like a whole lot more. They also bottomed out like we did. Okay. Uh, they And they, they've had all the same economic consequences, and in a lot of cases, much worse. Okay. And so for a region like Central Ohio that's just continually grown decade after decade, as opposed to Cleveland, which has had kind of anemic growth... Right. That it's the fact that they have double the downtown population we do, you say, okay, what's happening here? So now I ask you, what's happening there? The big thing is, goes back to demolition. We demolished so much of our building stock within downtown Columbus, and Cleveland and Cincinnati never went down that path. Okay. And when did we do... That was before 2000, right? Yeah. Okay. So really from the 50s up until the late 90s when we got a new downtown zoning code. 
Okay. The way to fill up office buildings here was to provide parking, and the way to provide parking was to demolish buildings and do surface lots. Well, and we'll get to it in a little bit, but that is still the way things are. So they have the housing stock already. They, they kept it, basically. And so it was much easier, I imagine, to simply convert buildings that may not have been used for housing and convert them into beautiful downtown lofts. Yeah. Is that the simple answer? Yeah, that's the simplest answer. Really? Yeah. You could look at the number of historic tax credit projects, for example, that happen in each of these cities. And we have, up until recently, we've had very few within downtown Columbus. And part of the problem is they're ju- we just don't have the historic buildings downtown. Who do we get to blame for this? I mean, like, how did this happen? Uh, I want to note here that it's a foregone conclusion that we should have housing stock and we should have a vibrant downtown. And that we should blame somebody. Well, (laughs) I I just don't, I don't want somebody to be like, well, this is a one-sided argument. I'm making it a foregone conclusion that we want a vibrant downtown. Yes. So. Well, I, I can talk, I can tell you one of the things that's changed it. Okay. And in the late 90s, people were getting fed up with the demolition. There was a great mansion at the corner of Town and Grand Avenue across the street from Grant Medical Center that was targeted for demolition for a surface lot. It happened, but that after that happened, uh, the city did a moratorium on demolition in downtown so that they would have time to come up with a new zoning code. Right. That got created. That led to the formation of the Downtown Commission. And so now, generally speaking, demolition is illegal downtown. Uh, illegal is probably too strong of a word, but... You're basically not allowed to do it until you get approval from the downtown commission. And the downtown commission is really looking for, are you going to replace the building you're demolishing with something better? And to be clear to our listeners, the downtown commission is an area commission, all appointed, and they basically make recommendations to council about what can happen. Well, they're regulatory, so what? Oh, okay. It's not even a recommendation. So it's not like, because you sit on the Victorian Village Commission. We're also regulatory. What about the Italian Village? They're regulatory. Who doesn't have any power? We actually talked about this in an episode that aired last week about what power is associated with commissions, area commissions. Generally speaking, and I, I don't know this exactly, but generally speaking, area commissions will recommend zoning changes to either council or the Board of Zoning Adjustment, but either one of those bodies can overrule the commission. Right. In our and in, in the case of the downtown commission, the zoning and the the approval for the building is all wrapped up within the commission okay. itself. When you look at the historic commissions like German Village, Italian Village, and Victorian Village, the main architectural review is regulatory. Uh, and rests with the commission. The zoning still rests with either BZA or council, so that still is a recommendation. Okay, so it could still be overruled, basically. So just to go back a little bit in terms of the demolition that was happening in Columbus, it sounds like what you're saying, the code allowed it, developers wanted to do it, and so they did. Yeah. And thankfully, I guess, the city stepped in and put a moratorium on demolition and, and sort of fixed it. Yeah. So it wasn't some terrible politician or, frankly, even one terrible developer come in and said, clear all these buildings for parking lots. It just sort of happened because we didn't have a building code that was up to date enough to look towards long term goals and solutions right okay and and the other good thing about that zoning new zoning code is that it got rid of a parking requirement for downtown so when a developer is proposing parking as part of their building they're only providing as much space as they think as the developer they need to make it work on the market okay so it doesn't require that anymore 
Right. So if you look at... So um, like if somebody starts a bar in Italian Village, I mean, you have to have a certain number of like parking spaces. Are you saying within downtown that's not necessarily true? Correct. Okay. Good example is the new apartment project proposed by Crawford Hoying on the site of the Swan, uh, current Swan Cleaners. I can't remember how exactly how many units it is, but it's a lot of units, but they're only proposing 22 on-site parking spaces. Okay. So they're proposing way more units than they have parking for, but it sits across the alley from the River South Garage, which at nighttime is almost completely empty. Okay. So they, they are going to rely, I think, on their, their residents to find their own parking solution a lot of them will just choose or not a different transit solution or different transit solution so yeah a lot of them will which choose is not the subject of this episode <laughs> but it's all transportation the, is it yes i'm gonna really go back in time to do the, it the 1992 clinton election if you go to the, the war room documentary the, the mantra was it's the economy stupid right when it comes to cities and development it's transportation stupid okay uh you look at anything that's happening with development in central ohio Regardless of the neighborhood, it's all about transportation. You look at how Easton was built, how Polaris was built. Polaris, the, the exit to Polaris didn't exist 30 years ago. Right. That happened because developers asked for it and paid for a portion, but not all of it. Same right. With, same with the, the interchange at Easton. There was an interchange at, at Morse Road, but there was no interchange for a non-existent Easton way. Right. That happened because a developer asked for it. I was fortunate enough to sit across from you in a presentation a couple of weeks ago and one thing that stuck with me is we bring 87 cars downtown per 100 people every day. Yes. That's crazy. Yes. The only city that does more than us is Indianapolis. There is obviously no one solution. Right. We've heard from a couple other people about what they believe the solution to be or a combination of solutions. Here's your soapbox. How would you fix it? What has to happen for it to be fixed? There's a lot of things. Well, one, one thing is people need to just get over themselves first and foremost. There's a lot of people who come to work the same time every day, leave the same time every day. They leave their car warehoused all day long. They don't need it. And they, they have access to good transit and they could be using it. That's not everybody, but there's a lot of people. And, and the money they would save by taking the bus would more than offset the cost of parking the car on an occasional basis throughout the year. And, and now that we have Car2Go and Lyft and Uber, you have all these escape valves that you didn't have just a few years ago. So there, there's that as one part of the solution. The other part is we have a lot of employers downtown that are providing free or subsidized parking and no transit benefit. And so if you're an employee, you're going to take the free transit benefit. I don't fault you for that. Right. Uh, and then there's the issue of just having a more robust transit system. And Coda's putting a much better product out on the road that they have in probably the last 15 years. The service has improved every year. There's more service. The next step, provided the levy passes this fall, the next step is for them to start planning for high-capacity corridors, so more BRT routes uh, and light rail routes on top of that. And so that is issue number 60. Back to downtown residential living. Well, and then you were talking about what, what does that mean for the other types of real estate within downtown? Right. Absolutely. And, and this, where again, where it comes back to transportation, we have a severe parking crunch downtown. The good news for the parking lot operators is they're making a lot of money off those spaces. The bad news is that just makes that property more valuable. So if you're a property owner of a parking lot, you are probably making so much money, you don't want to sell that lot because it's a cash cow for you right now. 
why would you want to sell that to a developer to put up housing? And and I get that. I mean, everyone's doing every all this stuff in their self-interest, which is fine. Right. I That's mean, the private market. But I think that harkens back to what you said earlier. When there is a failure of the market for the common good, for the common interest, maybe it's time for an intervention. Maybe not the city, maybe not the county, but some sort of intervention to switch it. And again, it speaks to why rental and property costs in uh, downtown are so high. And yet the vacancy rate for offices is also high. Yeah. That is something that when the market goes up, bond prices go down. And so, you know, those th- we are not at an equilibrium uh, in downtown. Right. Is it fair to say that those downtown office vacancies are a result of that transportation problem as well? Yes, definitely. Looking at downtown specifically, so we have we have some buildings, especially in Capitol Square, where there's a 40 percent availability where these are places where the parking crunch is most severe. And and a lot of this goes back to, again, how downtown evolved over time. When we were starting to finally see skyscrapers in downtown in the late 60s, the State House Underground Garage had just had just opened. Right. And so that underground garage, this was before the was before it was servicing the Rife Center because the Rife Center opened in the late 80s before even the Rhodes Tower that didn't open until the mid 70s. And so we had this enormous stock of parking underneath the state house. And it was these private office buildings that were taking advantage of that. On top of that, in the 1960s, we had vastly many more people taking transit Uh because people often wonder the Chase Tower, the Borden building. Why didn't they build parking with it? Well, at the time, there was plenty of parking to be had. Right. For the amount of people that needed to park. And not as many people per capita were using it. Yeah. While it is a foregone conclusion that we want more people living downtown, more people are coming downtown, we see lots of building happening, lots of development happening, and most of that development, is that true, is residential or at least mixed use. Yes. Okay. Where are we going? That's a good question. I think the biggest wild card is when we might see the next recession. That is more than anything I think is going to just disrupt things. I I don't see one for several years uh, unless the the Fed, and this is my own personal opinion, if the Fed raises interest rates way too quickly, that will cause a big slowdown. Uh, But provided they don't do that, I, I think there's enough slack in the economy Uh, that things will keep chugging along here for several years. We're definitely going to see a lot more housing. I think we're going to see a lot more of these mixed-use projects that have been proposed that are incorporating not just ground floor retail and residential, but either some office space or hotel space. We'll see more mixing of apartment and condos within the same structures. Uh, Hopefully, we'll see a couple of more affordable housing projects get built. Uh, Downtown has had several of those get built over the last 15 years, so it hasn't just been high-end condos. Uh, And it's important that we still have that diversity of of income of people living in downtown. Absolutely. While it's not the focus of what we're talking about, what's going to solve the office vacancy rate downtown? I think it's going to be a combination of some type of transit solution. The Capital Crossroads City is trying to work on one that would uh, get transit passes into the hands of all the workers within the city. And I think more than double the ridership. Uh, and, and in addition to that, CODA's uh, transit system redesign, which will roll out in about a year, that will alone... If issue 60 passes. If issue 60 passes, that alone will boost transit ridership. I also think we'll, we're going to see some office space come off the market. I think we'll see uh, some office space can get converted into housing. Okay. So lowering the divisor will help the office vacancy rate, certainly. Right. Uh, and we continue to see a big demand from employers wanting to be downtown. And so I think the shift in thinking will percolate up more to 
the CEO level and they'll realize that in order to get and retain the workers they want, they're going to need to be downtown. And then finally, the, the fact that we do have executive level housing downtown and near downtown in Short North and German Village is a very important. So much of where a company locates is really dependent on where the executives live. And so if the executives live downtown or close to downtown, they're going to want their company to be there as well. And they want a short commute. Right. Don't we all? <laughs> Great. Mark, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks a lot. The Confluence Cast is sponsored by Telhio Credit Union. When you bank with Telhio, your money stays local, building homes and businesses right here in our community. Learn to believe in banking again and take the Telhio Challenge. When you do, Telhio will give $100 and match that to a local charity. Start at Telhio.com. Telhio is open to all in Central Ohio, federally insured by the NCUA. Sitting down with Realtor. Joe Peffer. Joe, how are you? I'm very good, thanks. How are you? Good. We're going to talk today about the Columbus housing market, what it's like to buy a home in general. How long have you been a realtor? I've been a realtor since 2003, Okay. always in Columbus. What were you doing before that? Before that, I was doing marketing, mostly for law firms. I had a uh, bachelor's degree in communication, and okay. I was getting my master's degree in marketing communication. Okay. What made you choose to get into the field? Well, immediately before that, I had applied to be the marketing director at like a million not-for-profits around town. I was always a bridesmaid. I think people didn't like the idea that I had a director title and a master's degree. Okay. And they thought that I would be too demanding or too heavy-handed, too much of a prima donna or too overqualified uh, or that I wouldn't really want the job. And okay. then I just use it to move on to something else. What ended up happening was I started a geographic information systems okay. business-to-business company with a friend of mine. I left my job and I wasn't so much the GIS portion of it as the everything else. Right. And no sooner did we get our first client than we realized that he couldn't leave his job because his family needed his benefits. Okay. So so you went out with the entrepreneurial spirit and realized that your business partner couldn't necessarily hold up that end. Right. So I decided that I had to do something. Right. I was lucky in that my wife, who is a Columbus City School school nurse, so it's great. She gets summers off. She has that schedule. We have good benefits. And that allowed me to go ahead and do what I did, was, which was take all the real estate classes mm-hmm. at Columbus State that summer. And it was like May when it all went down. And so right. I took them all during the summer. Uh, in the fall, I took the test, became a realtor. My first five years were with Cole Banker King Thompson. I worked out of the Bexley office. Okay. And how did you like that? You know, I liked it. Uh, the reason I went there, the first time I walked in and sat down to interview, because I mean, there's no like recruiting or anything. You take your test, you get your license, and you decide where it is you want to go. And okay. you go around, you interview people. And I talked to the manager there. He sat down with me for over three hours. Okay. And he didn't know me when I walked in the door, really. I had all these great ideas. It was 2003. I was going to do all these things on the internet that well, and with no ba- one was doing. Right. And with a background in marketing, the, that's how you sort of look at the field. Right. Is it similar to other professional degrees, I'm thinking of law school in particular, where you're sort of learning, you're learning the particulars, but you're not necessarily learning how to do the job. Oh, so very much. Okay. And this is what I always tell people who are thinking about being a realtor. Right. What you do in those classes has nothing to do with with what you do in real life. Okay. But there are things that you need to know just to have some kind of base knowledge. You know, you're always asked like, how many square feet are there in uh, an acre? How many square feet are in an acre? You know, it's been a long time since I took those classes. Doesn't matter anymore. Something like 52,000. I don't know. Okay. things, Things that just don't matter. Right. And so after that, you... 
I assume, moved on to delicious real estate. I did in October 2008, right when the economy was starting to fall apart. I opened delicious real estate. Uh, and my first office was uh, on South 4th Street, where 16-bit is now. Okay. It was a pretty sleepy corner at the time. Yeah. What was the impetus for starting Delicious Real Estate? A lot of it came down to wanting to do for my clients the way that I wanted to do for them. Okay. And while I certainly don't want to disparage your former employer, what are the differences in what you're able to do? I just have free reign to do whatever I want, essentially. If I want to give someone a discount, I can give them a discount without having to run it by the, the manager of the office. or Okay. Because the big firms, they're, they're in it for the money. Right. Uh, a place like Cobalt Banker is owned by a giant real estate company that has shareholders, and they look out for their shareholders. Absolutely. As well they should. I mean, sure, that's absolutely. their role. But when it comes down to me helping my clients, it's, there's a bit of a clash there. Okay. A- and, and also certainly came down to money. Okay, because uh, you, you know, get a I'm, bigger I'm, I'm cut paying of the check. Them a, I'm paying, I was paying them a lot of money just to be on a 90-10 split at the time. Okay. And I could have taken that money every month and opened my own place and paid a lease, which is exactly what I did. Gotcha. For people that are considering being realtors, would you recommend that? I mean, obviously, it's probably difficult to take that route starting out, but should it be a goal of people if they're you know not happy with the way things are going to start their own firm? I say yes. I, I think that you're right. It's not the thing you want to do when you're starting out. Right. It is very much a learn on the job kind of thing. And when you do go to a big box brokerage, you get excellent training. Uh, as a tiny brokerage, that's not something I can offer. I think you should do that. Every real estate agent essentially is their own company. Right. They all are very entrepreneurial because they work for themselves and it's all up to them to be motivated. And they get, I imagine, some sort of ad buy share and help with marketing, but they're the ones that are putting their feet on the pavement and getting the clients in the door. Sure. We'll get into the the specifics of the home buying process in a second, but what's the difference for the buyer? Well, the buyer or the seller. And do you do both? Sure. Okay. What's the difference for the buyer or the seller between going to a big box uh, brokerage and going to a boutique brokerage? Well, it's 2016, so not much. Okay. Uh, At the end of the day, if you use a small boutique brokerage, then... Your listing is all over the internet and anyone all over the world can see your listing. Is it by virtue of the use of the internet that that's why there isn't a whole lot of difference? In large part, yes. Okay. Because once your listing is in the MLS, it propagates throughout the world and so many more websites than you would even think to look at. Okay. And what is, I get alerts from the MLS, but I actually, what does it stand for? Multiple listing system. Okay. And so that's something that any realtor worth their salt is subscribed to and is able to sort of show listings and put listings into. Right. And only if you are a real estate agent can you do that. Okay. So back in the day, they used to hold all the power, right? They were big gatekeepers because it was, it, there was no Zillow. Right. If you wanted to find a house, you had to go to a big box place because they're the ones controlling the listings. Right. And the MLS was everything. But now so there's so many MLS-like sites out there where there are lots of listings. And to be the most up-to-date, you almost need those immediate MLS listings that you get from your agent. But anybody can be essentially a big box brokerage, right? or, or at least appear to be. Okay. Well, and is that because of the sort of speed of the market that's functioning here in Columbus because it's so quick? I know when I've looked at homes in the past, it was literally you find out about a listing, you schedule that 
very day to go and see it, maybe the next day, maybe that same day. And you kind of have to put an offer in that afternoon. Yeah, that the, the market, especially uh, in the high street corridor, has very much been like that uh, over the last couple of years. Uh, this last spring, especially, was brutal. Yeah. Uh, in in that regard. Yeah. So talk about the home buying process. Say someone is at a point in their life where they're like, okay. I imagine I'm going to be living with this many people, whether that be children, whether that be a partner, and we think we need two bedrooms, three bedrooms, and we've got a little bit of money or can access a little bit of money for a down payment. How does the home buying process start? Well, the first thing I suggest is sitting down with an agent. Okay. A realtor. And a realtor. Who, and an agent doesn't necessarily have to be a realtor. Okay. A realtor means they belong to the National, National Association of Realtors. Okay. It's kind of a trade name. Uh, you can also be a real estate agent and not be a realtor, but almost no one is. Okay. Because then they wouldn't belong to the MLS. Got it. So you, you, you sit down with a realtor. You, you tell them what you're thinking and you tell them where you're thinking. Right. Uh, and you tell them what your price range is. And because they're out there looking at these homes every day and they have a history of looking at these homes, they can help shape your expectations. Because they're going to know what's reasonable. They're going to know what's reasonable. Because if I come to you and say, I want a three-bedroom house in the short north for $200,000, you're going to say, that's not reasonable. But you may, if that's your budget, absolutely, here are other areas of town that are up and coming. Right. Uh, and, and then really just explain the process. Most transactions, although every transaction is completely different than the next, mm-hmm. they all follow the same sort of pattern. And a lot of it starts with where is the buyer at any particular point in time? Okay. Where are they financially? Where are they mentally? Uh, like we talked about, sometimes you have to make an offer very quickly. And if you're just kind of dipping your toe into the market, right. you're, you might not be ready for that. Right. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't go see the house. Right. Because the more houses you get in with your agent, the more likely you are to have a sense of the market. So should a potential buyer be at all concerned about taking up their agent's time in terms of going to see a house and, you know, they're probably not going to make an offer on it? No. And that's a good question. I get to ask that a lot. Okay. I think that if the house is something that you would consider buying and you feel that you're going to be buying a house and you're, you, you feel pretty sure that you're going to be buying a house right? in the next so many months or so, by all means, go see it. Don't feel bad about wasting your agent's time because- That's his, their job. His time is your time. Right. Exactly. And like I said, the more houses you get in, the better. Now, if you can only buy a house up to $300,000, let's say, right, and you're curious about what a $350,000 house looks like, that's kind of something else. Okay. You go see those open houses. Okay. And then then you t- basically you take your own time and go to those right. type of things. Right. Because because you, you can't buy that house. But is it a good idea for you to understand what the extra $50,000 buys? Mm-hmm. It it is a good idea. So so go ahead and look at those online and go to those open houses, but take your agent's time to look at as many houses as you feel comfortable looking at. I always tell people don't be afraid to make an offer in the first house that you physically get into because sometimes it's the right house. Right. And your agent can help you with that, even though he might not know you as well as certainly you know yourself. Right. They can help you understand whether it's a a good or bad idea. You mentioned pricing a little bit and how people sort of, what is the best way for an individual to sort of figure out how much home they can afford? Is it simply, here's the amount of 
you know, liquid assets I have access to and am comfortable giving up for a down payment. And here's what I'm willing to pay per month. And then there's sort of a calculation based on that. Or would you recommend a potential buyer, a serious buyer going and getting like a pre-approval? You absolutely have to have a pre-approval okay. before you can even get serious about looking at homes. Can someone without a pre-approval even make an offer? Certainly they can. Okay. But the seller is going to take that offer less seriously than an offer that comes in without a pre-approval. Okay. Even if they say that they'll have that pre-approval in the next 24 hours. It's, the seller kind of wants to make a decision before that. They, they probably do. Okay. And, and they want to feel good about the buyer and they feel better about a buyer who is pre-approved. And I always tell people the easiest thing for you to do is to walk into the place where you you have your checking account, wherever your check is automatically deposited. They, they know you, they know your money, and you're already a customer, so they want to help you. They, they already have an incentive to, to help you. You don't have to use that same bank at, at the end of the day. Right, uh, but at least you have that letter. Yeah, and, and you sit down with them, and they'll, they'll pre-approve you relatively quickly. It's easy, it's painless, and it'll give you a benchmark for how much you can spend. Now, that has nothing to do with how much you want to spend. Got it. You spend however much you feel comfortable spending every month. You can be approved for 420, but if you're much more comfortable at 275 mortgage payment right. every month, then then that's what you look at. Okay. And when somebody comes to you as a potential client, do you recommend, hey, go out and do this before we start looking at houses? I do. Okay. Although I'll tell you that most people come to me ready to go. Okay. Because these days everyone everyone seems to look and look and kind of lurk well, because and, it's and watch available. the real estate market because right. it is available. Right. You, they set up their own alerts on sites like Zillow and Trulia and Realtor.com. And they've been watching the market and they've been going to open houses and sometimes for a couple of years. Uh, so they, they come to me pretty knowledgeable about both the market and about where they are comfortable financially. Are sort of those self-educated clients coming with any misperceptions largely? I, I would say that one of the biggest misconceptions people do come with is that you have to put a large amount of money down on a house, like let's say 20%. That, that seems to be what everyone thinks that you have to do. And certainly you don't have to do that. You can put down a lot less. And sometimes it's a good idea to put down a lot less and make your money work harder for you somewhere else. Sometimes it's a good idea to put down more. There's such a thing as a 5% down, no PMI mortgage out there. If you could save that 15%, for example, to furnish the house right. or to work on those couple things that you know to be wrong with the house right, or to just, like I said, work for you harder somewhere else. Well, and there's the economic concept of the time value of money. It's always sort of better to have it in your account and accessible rather than just servicing a loan. Absolutely. Now, that said, you want to have equity in your house should an emergency come up, right? Right. Maybe your spouse gets transferred and it's eight months in, in, into your new house and you want to be able to break even. Right. Because you all put you're down doing- 20%, then you'll get that 20% back and you, you'll probably break even. If, if you sell your house within the first year, you should have no reasonable expectation of making any money. Right. Unless it's a crazy market or and, you buy it and, in a yeah. short sale or you buy it at a time because we're kind of entering into, correct me if I'm wrong, the time of year where there aren't a whole lot of home sales happening because it tends to happen in the spring and the summer, frankly, when you know people are trying to get residency for schools. Yeah, the real estate market does tend to revolve around school schedules. Okay. Less so in the city of Columbus. 
and less so for young professionals. Okay. And less so for people who maybe are retiring and, and downsizing. But for the most part, absolutely. Uh, the, the colder months, there's a lot less happening. Gotcha. But it's still happening. And I don't want to get into sort of creditworthiness, and that's or that's for another that's for a banker podcast. <laughs> but is it better to have a relationship with a credit union than it is with a big bank at all, or is there any evidence of that that you've seen? I will say that credit unions, being member driven, mm-hmm. really want to look out for the members. Okay. And anytime that I've had a client who has coming from a credit union, it's worked out fine. When I have clients who are working with a big bank, we've had some nightmare situations because big banks tend to move very slow. Right. When I say nightmare, it always ends up okay, but the appraisal will be low because they have a big pool of appraisers who sometimes don't know the neighborhood. And don't have a good idea of the comps, the comparable sales in the neighborhood. Right. And and banks and appraisers can't even really talk to each other these days. Okay. But that, again, that's Which in the podcast. end is kind of a, in my mind, kind of a good thing. Right. Because it sets a fair market, value, right. literally a fair market value. Right. And big banks miss deadlines all the time. Okay. And sometimes the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing, and they ask you for the same documentation over and over, even though you've already given it to them. My preference is always local bank, small to mid-size, somewhere where the underwriter is right down the hall. Okay. Instead of in another city or across the country. Someone who has some accountability that you can go physically speak to. Right. Frankly, the large banks don't have an incentive to make it easy or seamless. And those smaller banks do because, again, that guy's down the hall and he's accountable. Talk about sort of how things get priced and why a home in the short north may be vastly different from a home in Marion Village and just sort of walk us through that process of how things get priced it's, from the get-go. It's it's very much what you would expect it to be. Okay. It's based on similar sales of similar homes in a similar area. Now, you mentioned Short North. Mm-hmm. Short North is always a crazy, always a very fast-paced real estate market. A home there that is a three-bedroom, bath-and-a-half, uh, let's say an Italian village, uh-huh. compared to a three-bedroom, bath-and-a-half that is maybe a quarter mile away in Milo Grogan. Well, same zip code, right? Quarter mile away, very obviously, but very, it's going very to be different. A very, very different home price, right? A lot of that has to do with desirability of wanting to live in the neighborhood. Every, everything's based off comps, right? But certainly, there is a. And when you say comps, just for clarity, sure. we're talking about comparable home comparable sales, comparable sales within of, the neighborhood, similar homes in, in the neighborhood. But certainly, the desirability of a neighborhood is a unknown that affects prices. Right. It's very difficult to put a number on what being in central Clintonville can do for your home. If you're on the bike path and can walk to Whetstone without having to cross a busy street in Northmore, what is the invisible multiplier? Right. But but it's there. Right. Absolutely. So you do setting those prices for sellers as well, correct? Right. And, and, and certainly it, it's an ongoing discussion. If a seller is unrealistic, because let's face it, every seller thinks their home is better than the comp. Right. Uh, Well, my home has this and my home has that. Well, that's great, but what if buyers don't care? Right. And oftentimes they might not care. Well, and I've certainly been in homes that while the comp in terms of the rough numbers, you know, the number of bedrooms, the number of bathrooms, exactly the same, were priced the same. But then when you look at like the square footage, it ends up being, those other homes end up being a whole lot bigger. 
uh, but they've, you know, they've sort of asked for what they think they can get. Right. And and obviously the level of doneness, we'll say, okay. in, in a house has a lot to do with it. You know, how updated is the house? And, and is it just updated because it's pretty to look at? Or have the mechanicals been taken care of? Is there a newer roof? Are the cabinets just painted or are they newer? Right. Or are they original with some lipstick on them, we'll say. Okay, gotcha. So let's say, you know, somebody goes into a house, they say, I want to make an offer. That seems to be, at least from talking to people, the great unknown of like sort of, you know, what happens then? Well, everyone comes from a background of wanting to get the most for the least, Okay. We all we all want that. Right. The seller wants the most money they can get. The buyer wants to buy the house for the least amount of money possible. And that all makes sense. The real estate market that we've been in, and I do primarily work inside of 270, but it's been the same all over Franklin County. Okay. There's not a lot of wiggle room. Uh, it used to be that a buyer could ask the seller to pay for their closing costs. Uh, dear seller, will you please pay uh, what would be approximately two to two and a half percent of the purchase price so that I can pay the closing costs that I've incurred from the bank, from the title company from the county and, and the seller would pay maybe one to three percent of the, of the buyer's closing costs okay that that just doesn't happen really that, that hasn't happened in years because it's too brisk of a market sellers are getting multiple offers all the time and they're not going to bother with well, closing and costs and that's going to be in the initial offer right right the offer is going to say okay we'll give you 295 but will you help out with closing costs and we may come back. I've had the experience where we put into the offer, if the inspection comes back with items that are below $500 to fix, we won't bother you about them at all. But if there's anything that may be above $500, we're going to ask about it, or we, we reserve the right to ask about it. Absolutely. And I would tell you that in Franklin County, what is called the list price to sales price, the amount of money that a house ends up selling for compared to what it's listed at, okay. is hovering right around 98%. Okay. So wiggle room is kind of a thing of the past. In neighborhoods up and down the high street corridor, oftentimes how homes are selling for more than list price. So you're saying adding those clauses of closing costs, things that may come back on the inspection anything else that they may ask for it's sort of you're almost shooting yourself in the foot a little bit in terms of the offer yes and, okay. and, and that's this market this market is a seller's market mm -hmm. and and in these neighborhoods for example last spring it, it, it wasn't even a question of how much do i offer because you know it's going to be above list price right it's it's how far above list price is just paying too much and i should let somebody else do it right because even if a list price is inflated if you want to get the house, sometimes you have to go above list price and you have to put clauses in there that escalate your offer a thousand dollars above the next guy, let's say, or you have to say Which sometimes are ignored as well. Right. Right. And, and, and being first isn't doesn't mean what it used to mean. Sometimes if you're the first offer, great. You know, you would put a short deadline on the turnaround time for them to get back to you and you would offer full price and, and you would expect to hear back from them and you would expect that they would say yes because you're offering them full price. Right. Even that doesn't mean anything. Oftentimes what they would say is, well, we just went on the market. We want to give it a couple of days and see how many other offers at at least full price we get. Right. So why would they price it at such a point that they wouldn't take that offer? Because it's a seller's market. Because it's a seller's market. And I'll okay. go back to the seller wanting to get as much money as possible. So buyers are putting things in their offers like, we'll take it as is. You, you don't have to do anything at all. We're going to have a home inspection. So we know what our frame of reference is for right. what the house 
looks like in terms of will it need repairs. And reserve the right to then turn it down based on that inspection. Correct. But we won't ask you to fix anything. And people are also doing things like waiving appraisal clauses, saying that if the appraisal comes in low, you know what? It's okay. We'll take care of that $10,000 or we'll take care of at least $5,000 of that $10,000. Anything you can do to make your offer look better than the next guy. Gotcha. What are some of the pitfalls that a buyer should be aware of in that process? Well, one thing that you see happen in a market like that is buyer's regret. They see the home, they get caught up in the frenzy of the multiple offer situation. Well, and there's multiple people walking through the house at the same it's, time. Oh yeah, you, you'll walk into a home, it's the first day it's on the market, it, it's the first few hours it's on the market, there's 30 other people there. Yeah. With their agents looking at the house. It's, it's, it's crazy, and you know that they're gonna make an offer, or at least some of them will. Right. But you love the house, or you think you do, because you walk through it quickly. It's the only thing on the market right now that fits your needs. Well, it's dressed up real nice because it's the first day on the market. Right. And then, so so you make an offer, and you do go above and beyond everybody else's offer, and then they accept your offer, and then you sit back and you think, oh my God, what did we just do? Are we way overpaying for that house? And and you do do see homes coming off the market, or coming actually back on the market Mm -hmm. because of that. That's why, number one, it's a good idea to be a backup offer. Okay. If they don't take your offer the first time, but you really like the house, offer to be a backup offer. Because if those people in front of you do get buyer's regret, you're automatically next in line. Okay. You, you, you'll automatically be in contract on the house. What else? Not too many people do offer to buy the house in as-is condition. A, a pitfall might be not asking for that thing that you wish that you would ask for. Okay. Like what? Like, could you please fix the flashing around the chimney? Okay. You think that you'll take care of it? But you're never you getting move up in there. And, you know, yeah, you're, you're more interested in the inside of the house. You got to paint. You got to do these other cosmetic things that are going to make you feel better about the, the house. And then the next spring rolls around. It starts raining a lot. Uh, and you think, oh, my God, that flashing. We should have taken care of that. Right. I think having an agent that sets reasonable expectations for the condition of a house is important because it, in a way, and this has been the case now for for years, HGTV has ruined home buyers. Okay. They watch the shows on TV. They want the stainless. They want the granite. Right. Or they think, geez, granite. Nobody's got granite anymore. It's all about the quartz and the concrete. And, <laughs> and they walk into a house and that's what they want. And right. they, they want pristine. They want move and ready. In the historic- I thought you were going to go the complete opposite way with this and say that HGTV has made people think that they're more capable of doing things to their home than they actually are. I, I think that you're absolutely right on that end of the spectrum also. Okay. The, the expectations, I think, of home buyers are somewhat unrealistic. Okay. Because especially in these older neighborhoods, despite the price of the house, I've been in a lot of million dollar houses that you just think, oh my God. This house needs so much updating. It's so much work. Right. No matter the price of the house, this older housing stock, and that's what I love to work in, is homes with character. Mm-hmm. That often comes with deferred maintenance, especially in up and down the high street quarter because people don't live in the homes for a super long time. Right. They might move out to the suburbs or they might get a job transfer because they're young in their career. And, and everyone lives in the house and when you live in the house, you're, you're more concerned with the things that you see immediately around you. Right. It, it's not fancy and, and, it, and you don't see well, the, you don't, all the things you really need to do to the house. And you don't look up in the corner a whole lot for little bits of paint that seem to be coming off. Why is that paint coming off? Because you live in it. It's, you know, you're there in the moment. 
Right. You don't do the sexy repairs. You do do the sexy repairs. You, you, you don't do the things that need to be done that you don't look at all day long. The structural stuff, the little piece of siding that's coming off right. that may be damp, you know, keeping water away from the foundation. That the things the thing. buyers look at and say, oh, I wonder what else is wrong. Exactly. Exactly. Talk about the Columbus housing market in general and sort of, you know, where the really the short north, obviously, you keep mentioning the high street corridor. Are there any other sort of hot neighborhoods? And are there any other neighborhoods that you would recommend people look at that maybe they haven't considered? I would say the hot neighborhoods are just they're all over this year. I mean, everything is a hot neighborhood. Dublin is hot. Gahanna is hot. Westerville is hot. Things are moving quickly. And they're moving quickly in that first-time homebuyer kind of range, especially. By that number, I'll say anything 250 and under. Okay, because that's a comfortable purchase. Right. Although I think that trend-wise, I'm seeing older first-time homebuyers okay. who have saved up more money for a more expensive house. It's, it's not the sort of starter home that it used to be. It's more of a second home, and guess what? We're going to have our kids here, and we're going to stay here kind of thing. Okay. Along those same lines, I'm seeing more people willing to stay in the city with kids, although oftentimes when I walk through a house for sale in the city, there's a crib. <laughs> there's okay. one crib, and those people are on the move to oh, a, because you a, see a them. school system that they feel they need to get to. Okay. Uh, although I, I do want to say that I think that people are, are more willing to stay and put down roots, and in, they already enjoy the city. Right. They like the walkability, and now they're going to like it with their kids. What neighborhood are you in? I'm in Old Town East. Okay. And I've been in Old Town East for a long time. And we talked right before we started recording today. You have three kids, one in middle school, two in high school. You've decided to keep your kids here in the city. What would you say to somebody that was considering moving because uh, this is not realty? Well, it is realty related to an extent. It is, sure. What would you say to somebody who says, God, I have to get out? in order to provide a quality education for my kid. You can provide a quality education for your kid and live in the city of Columbus, and it's not as hard as you think. Okay. I know people who want to do it because their kids are going to a school that they are standing up and saying, we're not going to leave. We're going to keep our kids in school. It's a Columbus City school. We're going to help make this school better. Right. Instead of taking our kids and moving out to the suburbs, the schools are getting better. Clintonville, let's say, for example, has some of the best Columbus City schools there are. Absolutely. There's schools in the short north. There's schools in German Village. They're getting better and better because the parents are saying, you know what? We don't have to move. We can stay here and we can continue to love our neighborhood and we can be a part of our kids' school. And be just, just being present is so much uh, of a school. Now, not every school is repairable repairable. You know, I would never say give up on a school. Right. There's there's schools that just need a lot of work. Yeah. And and they need parents to stand up for them too. But sometimes it's just not that easy. Right. Uh, the elementary school, middle school and and the high school that my kids would go to normally, it just it just did not seem viable. Right. Well, and it should be noted here that if people aren't aware, Columbus City Schools does have a lottery program for both neighborhood schools and for their alternative schools. I, being a Columbus City School kid, I never went to any of my neighborhood schools. I'm very thankful for the education I got throughout Columbus City Schools. What do you see, just turning back to realty, what do you see that home buyers want that you wouldn't, for someone who's selling their home, what are the easy things that they can do that home buyers 
are turned on by. The easiest thing you can do, and I know it sounds overly simplified, is just clean the heck out of your house. Okay. I mean, every nook and cranny. Because they will look. They will look. It just makes an unbelievable difference. And I, I know that sounds easy, but you would be amazed at how many times you walk into a house and it just feels dingy. Okay. Maybe they didn't wash the windows. Right. Or they didn't get that cobweb in the corner. And every little thing helps. And certainly the, the, the quick, easy cosmetic things help too. The paint, the new carpet. Uh, you know, these things are relatively inexpensive. While you can't maybe install a new carpet yourself, you can paint. Right. You can put new handles on your kitchen cabinets. Right. You know, you can take up that linoleum and tile the kitchen, the bathroom floor yourself. You can just go on YouTube and do a multitude of things that you maybe don't think you can do, uh, which kind of goes back to the... God bless you, HGTV. In terms of, you know, working with your realtor, just finding a realtor and being ready for that, what can buyers do? I think one good thing to do is ask your friends, how was your experience with your realtor? Did, did it work out well? What did, what did you like? What, what did you not like? And did you feel rushed? You know, did you feel like you were aware of everything that was going on in the process? Right. And, and oftentimes not until you start talking to other people about their experience. Do you realize maybe your experience was so, in fact subpar? Okay. It, it, it might be too late by, by that time. It, I'm amazed at how many people do come to me talking about how their agent wasn't showing them homes that they wanted to see, wasn't showing them homes that were in their price range. They weren't in the neighborhood they wanted. They keep showing them condos when they want single family or vice versa. I don't understand that. Yeah. Um, it's kind of alarming how often that happens and do you think it's because those realtors are in a niche and that's sort of what they know and so that's what they show them if by niche you mean rut probably rut yeah that, okay like that's their frame of reference okay and, and they have a small world maybe well or and that's the world that they live in so they're gonna or maybe they're just inexperienced right the, the bar to being a realtor is so low that there are so many realtors. Sometimes you see people using their parents' realtor just because it's what their parents keep telling them to do. Right. Or they use their boss's wife or or husband. And you know maybe it's just because it's convenient now because it's a good fit. Right. And so what should they look for? Just someone who sort of they feel like gets them? I think getting them is, is huge, but probably difficult to ascertain okay. uh, on a first meeting. I think buyers in general don't tend to shop around. They just go with someone right? who, again, is, is, is probably a referral from somebody at work or, or maybe even their parents if they're first-time home buyers. Right. Or they go with somebody who's signed, if they're sellers, they go with somebody who's signed they see all around town. Right. Uh, well, this person seems to have a lot of signs in my neighborhood, so I'm just going to call them because they must do a lot in my neighborhood. Right. They should include other people in the conversation because there's a lot more than just that agent. And, you know, listings beget listings. Right. So the more listings you have, the, the better for you, I guess. But maybe not the better for your client. What makes Delicious different? Well, when I started my real estate company, I wanted it to be very client focused. Okay. Because I was coming from a place I felt was very all about the company focused. Mm -hmm. So, so one, one, one thing I do is I don't represent both sides of real estate transaction. I don't represent both the buyer and the seller because I think it's impossible to be for both of those clients to have the best experience possible. Well, and to be fair and impartial in that contract and make sure everything, make sure everything works you, out. You're going to know something you wish you didn't know. Right. So there's a reason why lawyers a, don't get to represent both sides of an argument. Right. Someone's going to be at a disadvantage and, and it happens all the time. It happens all the time. Those people whose names you see on those signs all over town. 
They're doing it left and right. And a lot of times it's because buyers will just go to an open house maybe. They'll say, well, I like this house. I want to make an offer. And they just talk to that agent. They maybe just don't know that, that they need to have their own representation. And they don't know that it's hurting them to not have their own rep- representation. And another thing I do is I just, I've been selling homes for since 2003. Mm-hmm. I know what it takes to sell a home. And I know exactly, more or less, how many hours I have wrapped up in that and all the tasks that I need to do along the way. And it's only going to take me so many hours. So I can set a threshold where I know that I'm getting paid for those that amount of work. Right. And I think that it's fair. It's fair to me. It's fair to the seller. And I'm not robbing them of their home equity. I know that I'm doing the same amount of work, more or less, for a $250,000 house as I am for a $425,000 house. I'm not going to take 3% of their four twenty-five dollars when, when I know that I, I've got this much wrapped up into it. Okay. And I know that those people are probably going to turn around and buy a house anyway. Right. We already have an established relationship, and I'm going to make money on that end. Right. Because you're not, and again, and just to drive the point home, you're not there to steal their equity. I'm not there to steal their equity. And, and I feel like that's exactly what it's doing. Real estate agents are vastly overpaid, in my opinion. You know, I think we provide a great service. But when it comes on the, to the listing side, it's, it's silly to give that guy 3% and dip into what you should clear on your house. Right. Money that you need to turn around and buy your next house. But you know what? If the seller on the other end wants to give me 3%, they're not my client, and I'll take it all day long. Right. <laughs> That's fair. So Someday, the real estate transaction, the way that real estate agents are paid, it'll be completely different. Standardized more, you think? It'll be much more standardized. It'll be hourly, or it'll be just you'll get this for doing this, and you'll get that for doing this. The whole idea that the seller pays the buyer's agent right now is odd, isn't it? Why does the seller pay the buyer's agent? A lot of times buyers do come to me, and they ask me, how, how is it that I get paid? Right. Do they pay me? And it's they're, they're always surprised when I tell them that the amount of money I get paid is built into the price of the home. Right. They will be paying me over the course of that 30-year mortgage. Right. But they don't have to pay me. The seller pays me. That's not in the closing costs, right? You, you asked about what neighborhoods should people be looking at. Yeah. Well, I think that as the core of Columbus becomes more and more desirable, and I, I feel like it is becoming more and more desirable. Right. I mean, and it's been happening for years and years and years. People need to start looking outside that Worthington to Marion Village, which is what I essentially mean by when I say High Street Corridor. Yeah. For their, for their first home, because they, they think that they want Grandview or they think that they want Clintonville, only to find that they're, they're really kind of priced out of it. Right. So, At least in terms of the amount of home they want. Right. In terms of the amount of home that they want. Because you can probably afford a centrally located but really small place, small acreage, small house. But are you going to be able to grow there? And how, how long could you possibly live there? Right. Especially if you're coming from an apartment where you already feel a little bit crowded. Right. And, and you don't want on-street parking because, by God, you feel like you're buying a house. Right. You should get something else. You know, Columbus is small when it comes right down to it. Okay. And there are no secret neighborhoods anymore, especially first-time home buyers. But even people who have moved to Columbus and they've been here a couple of years, they have a small version of Columbus. Right. It's where they have lived where they have played and not much more. Right. The, the route that they take to go to work and, and maybe what's off of that. People are going to start looking on the other side of 71 from Clintonville. Hopefully. Because they're going to realize that they can get more house for the money. Once more, these neighborhoods start having more recognizable names. Right. Because once a neighborhood has a name, things start to take off. Well, you can reference it, right? Right. But the, the, the whole Carl uh, Road, Mays Road area, the, there are homes over there and they have big lots for the most part. And, yeah. And... You're, you're Clintonville adjacent. 
Yeah. So you can still do the same sort of things you might do in Clintonville, but you're you're in a more affordable place. There's a lot of streets in Columbus that I like because when you drive down that street, it feels like you're in a real city. Mm-hmm. And by real city, I guess I mean older, more industrial, uh, more character. And these are all the same streets that people want to avoid. These are the Cleveland Avenues, the Parsons Avenue, the West Broad Street, Livingston Avenue. Places where you feel, gosh, this is great. There's all these storefronts. There's people out. There's people about. Right. And it gives you a real city vibe. Well, it's part of the reason why you live in Old Town. Right. Along these neighborhoods, along these streets, the neighborhoods will eventually be coming back. And it's going to start with closest to downtown with a better housing stock in places like south of Children's Hospital, mm-hmm. east of Parsons. I mean, German Village, Marion Village. There's, there's only so many homes there. Right. Uh, and and I, this year, especially, I've seen homes in that area really start to take off. Homes that you never would have thought would be selling for the amount of money they're selling for selling. Uh, this has been a big year for flips. Okay. Uh, there's been a lot of, there's been a poor first time home buyers, right? They have to compete with each other. And now they have to compete with people who have the money to come in and offer cash. Right. For a home. Get it uh, at a lower buying price. Do the minimal amount of work they can and put it back on the market. And there, there is a lot of minimal amount of work. But it, it you walk in and it feels and smells new. There's a lot of people making a lot of money. Yeah. And unfortunately, sometimes it does come at the cost of those first-time home buyers buying that home and putting much more TLC into it. It's hard to find that that secret place and it's hard to think outside of the places where you really always saw yourself living Uh, sometimes you just have to be okay with being on the fringe right because those houses are going to appreciate like the other houses you'll just always be on the the sort of edge of that community until you're not anymore until it's sort of you end up in the heart of it at some point at some point right well and you got to think too about how long you consider staying like you said earlier you're certainly not going to move into a home and leave within a year and make any money you're probably going to lose money on that house. But if you imagine that you're able to stay there for five years, then you can think about sort of your quote-unquote next home. Right, right, yeah. I, I think you have to stay somewhere three to five years to, to realistically recoup the amount of money it takes to sell the house and, and maybe get a little something for a down payment for your next house. Talk with your agent about alternative neighborhoods. If you've got $225,000 you can spend comfortably, you, 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 you're looking in Clintonville, you, it's not going as far as you want it to go, maybe your realtor can suggest Berwick. Mm-hmm. You know, it's more house for the money. It's a great neighborhood. You get a much bigger lot. You might still need to do a little bit of work to, to make it your own, but you're going to be happy there. And they have a, a solid Columbus Alternative Elementary School there that, that the neighborhood's kind of always been built around. Right. You're Bexley adjacent, so there's things on Main Street that you can't walk to, but they're right there. Right. Including a new two-story Giant Eagle. It's fancy. <laughs> it's fancy. Joe, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate Absolutely, it. Absolutely, Tim. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. Again, you can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Please rate, subscribe, share this episode of the Confluence Cast with your friends, family, contacts, enemies, your favorite property owner. If you're interested in sponsoring the Confluence Cast, get in touch with us. We can be reached by email at info at theconfluencecast.com. Our theme music was composed by Benji Robinson. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. Have a good week.